Chapter Twenty Two of Marcia Schuyler by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Two. David stumbled blindly out the door and down the street. His one thought was to get to his room at the tavern and shut the door. He had an important appointment that morning, but it passed completely from his mind. He met one or two men whom he knew, but he did not see them and passed them swiftly without a glance of recognition. They said to one another, How absorbed he is in the great themes of the world! But David passed on in his pain and misery and humiliation, and never knew they were near him. He went to the room that had been his since he had reached New York, and fastening the door against all intrusion, fell upon his knees beside the bed, and let the flood tide of his sorrow roll over him. Not even when Kate had played him false on his wedding morning had he felt the pain that now cut into his very soul. For now there was mingled with it the agony of consciousness of sin. He had sinned against heaven, against honor and love, and all that was pure and good. He was just like any bad man. He had yielded to sudden temptation and taken another man's wife in his arms and kissed her that the woman had been his by first right, and that he loved her, that she had invited the kiss, indeed pleaded for it, his sensitive conscience told him in no wise lessened the offense. He had also caused her whom he loved to sin. He was a man and knew the world. He should have shielded her against herself. And yet as he went over and over the whole painful scene through which he had just passed, his soul cried out in agony, and he felt his weakness more and more. He had failed, failed most miserably, acted like any coward. The humiliation of it was unspeakable. Could any sorrow be like unto his? Like a knife flashing through the gloom of his own shame would come the echo of her words as she pleaded with him to kiss her. It was a kiss of forgiveness she had wanted, and she had put her heart into her eyes and begged as for her very life. How could he have refused? Then he would parley with himself for a long time, trying to prove to himself that the kiss and the embrace were justified, that he had done no wrong in God's sight. And ever after this round of confused arguing, he would end with the terrible conviction that he had sinned. Sometimes Marcia's sweet face and troubled eyes would appear to him as he wrestled all alone, and seemed to be longing to help him, and again would come the piercing thought that he had harmed this gentle girl also. He had tangled her into his own spoiled web of life, and been disloyal to her. She was pure and true and good. She had given up everything to help him, and he had utterly forgotten her. He had promised to love, cherish, and protect her. That was another sin. He could not love and cherish her when his whole heart was another's. Then he thought of Kate's husband, that treacherous man who had stolen his bride and now gone away and left her sorrowing, left her without money, penniless in a strange city. Why had he not been more calm and questioned her before he came away? Perhaps she was in great need. It comforted him to think he had left her all the money he had with him. There was enough to keep her from want for a while. And yet, perhaps he had been wrong to give it to her. He had no right to give it. 
he groaned aloud at the thought of his helplessness to help her helplessness was there not some way he could find out and help her without doing wrong over and over he went through the whole dreadful day until his brain was weary and his heart failed him the heavens seemed brass and no answer came to his cry the appeal of a broken soul it seemed that he could not get up from his knees could not go out into the world again and face life he had been tried and had failed and yet though he knew his sin he felt an intolerable longing to commit it over again he was frightened at his own weakness and with renewed vigor he began to pray for help it was like the prayer of jacob of old the crying out of a soul that would not be denied all day long the struggle continued and far into the night at last a great peace began to settle upon david's soul things that had been confused by his passionate longings grew clear as day self dropped away and sin conquered slunk out of sight right and wrong were once more clearly defined in his mind however wrong it might or might not be he was here in this situation he had married marcia and promised to be true to her he was doubly cut off from kate by her own act and by his that was his punishment and hers he must not seek to lessen it even for her for it was god sent henceforth his path and hers must be apart if she were to be helped in any way from whatsoever trouble was hers it was not permitted him to be the instrument he had shown his unfitness for it in his interview that morning even if in the eyes of the world it could have been at all it was his duty to cut himself off from her forever he must not even think of her any more he must be as true and good to marcia as was possible he must do no more wrong he must grow strong and suffer the peace that came with conviction brought sleep to his weary mind and body when he awoke it was almost noon he remembered the missed appointment of the day before and the journey to washington which he had planned for that day with a start of horror he looked at his watch and found that he had but a few hours in which to try to make up for the remissness of yesterday before the evening coach left for philadelphia it was as if some guardian angel had met his first waking thoughts with business that could not be delayed and so kept him from going over the painful events of the day before he arose and hastened out into the world once more late in the afternoon he found the man he was to have met the day before and succeeded in convincing him that he ought to help the new enterprise he was standing on the corner saying the last few words as the two separated when kate drove by in a friend's carriage surrounded by parcels she had been on a shopping tour spending the money that david had given her for silks and laces and jewelry and now she was returning in high glee with her booty the carriage passed quite near to david who stood with his back to the street and she could see his animated face as he smiled at the other man a fine-looking man who looked as if he might be some one of note the momentary glance did not show the haggard look of david's face nor the lines that his vigil of the night before had traced under his eyes and kate was angered to see him so unconcerned and forgetful of his pain of yesterday her face darkened with spite and she resolved to make him suffer yet and to the utmost 
for the sin of forgetting her. But David was in the way of duty and did not see her, for his guardian angel was hovering close at hand. As the fall wore on and the winter set in, Harry's letters became less frequent and less intimate. Hannah was troubled, and after consultation with her grandmother, to which Miranda listened at the latch-hole, duly reporting quotations to her adored Mrs. Spafford, Hannah decided upon an immediate trip to the metropolis. Hannah's gone to New York to find what's become of that nimshi Harry Temple. She thought she had him fast, and she's been holdin' him over poor Lemuel Skinner's head, like that there sword hangin' by a hair I heard the minister tell about last Sunday. Till Lemuel, he don't know but every minute's gonna be his last. You mark my words, she'll have to take poor Lem after all, and be glad she's got him too. And she's none too good for him neither. He's been faithful to her ever since she wore pantalettes, and she's been keepin' him off and on, and hopin' and tryin' for somebody bigger. It would just serve her right if she'd get that fool of a hairy temple, but she won't. He's too sharp for that, if he is a fool. He don't want to tie himself up to no woman's apron strings. He rather dandle about after em all, and say pretty things, and keep his earnings for himself. Hannah reached New York the week after David left for Washington. She wrote beforehand to Harry to let him know she was coming, and made plain that she expected his attentions exclusively while there, and he smiled blandly as he read the letter and read her intentions between the lines. He told Kate a good deal about her that evening when he went to call, told her how he had heard she was an old flame of David's, and Kate's jealousy was immediately aroused. She wished to meet Hannah Heath. There was a sort of triumph in the thought that she had scorned and flung aside the man whom this woman had set her cap for, even though another woman was now in the place that neither had. Hannah went to visit a cousin in New York who lived in a quiet part of the city and did not go out much, but for reasons best known to themselves, both Kate Leavenworth and Harry Temple elected to see a good deal of her while she was in the city. Harry was pleasant and attentive, but not more to one woman than to the other. Hannah, watching him jealously, decided that at least Kate was not her rival in his affections, and so Hannah and Kate became quite friendly. Kate had a way of making much of her women friends when she chose, and she happened to choose in this case, for it occurred to her it would be well to have a friend in the town where lived her sister and her former lover. There might be reasons why sometime. She opened her heart of hearts to Hannah, and Hannah, quite discreetly, and without wasting much of her scanty store of love, entered, and the friendship was sealed. They had not known each other many days before Kate had confided to Hannah the story of her own marriage and her sister's, embellished, of course, as she chose. Hannah, astonished, puzzled, wondering, curious, at the tragedy that had been enacted at her very home door, became more friendly than ever, and hated more cordially than ever the young and innocent wife who had stepped into the vacant place, and so made her own hopes and ambitions impossible. She felt that she would like to put down the pert young thing for daring to be there, and to be pretty, and now she felt that she had the secret which would help her to do so. 
as the visit went on and it became apparent to hannah heath that she was not the one woman in all the world to harry temple she hinted to kate that it was likely she would be married soon she even went so far as to say that she had come away from home to decide the matter and that she had but to say the word and the ceremony would come off kate questioned eagerly and seeing her opportunity asked if she might come to the wedding hannah flattered and seeing a grand opportunity for a wholesale triumph and revenge assented with pleasure afterward as hannah had hoped and intended kate carried the news of the impending decision and probable wedding to the ears of harry temple but hannah's hint had no further effect upon the redoubtable harry two days later he appeared smiling congratulatory deploring the fact that she would be lost in a certain sense to his friendship although he hoped always to be looked upon as a little more than a friend hannah covered her mortification under a calm and condescending exterior she blushed appropriately said some sentimental things about hoping their friendship would not be affected by the change told him how much she had enjoyed their correspondence but gave him to understand that it had been mere friendship of course from her point of view and harry indulgently allowed her to think that he had hoped for more and was grieved but consolable over the outcome they waxed a trifle sentimental at the parting but when harry was gone hannah wrote a most touching letter to lemuel skinner which raised him to the seventh heaven of delight causing him to feel that he was treading upon air as he walked the prosaic streets of his native town where he had been going about during hannah's absence like a lost spirit without a guiding star dear lemuel she wrote i am coming home i wonder if you will be glad artful hannah as if she did not know it is very delightful in new york and i have been having a gay time since i came and everybody has been most pleasant but mid pleasures and palaces though we may roam still be it ever so humble there's no place like home a charm from the skies seems to hallow it there which go through the world you'll not meet with elsewhere home home sweet home there's no place like home that is a new song lemuel that everybody here is singing it is written by a young american named john howard payne who is in london now acting in a great playhouse everybody is wild over this song i'll sing it for you when i come home i shall be at home in time for singing school next week lemuel i wonder if you'll come to see me at once and welcome me you cannot think how glad i shall be to get home again it seems as though i had been gone a year at least hoping to see you soon i remain always your sincere friend hannah heath and thus did hannah make smooth her path before her and very soon after inditing this epistle she bade good-bye to new york and took her way home resolved to waste no further time in chasing will-o'-the-wisps when lemuel received that letter he took a good look at himself in the glass more than seven years had he served for hannah and little hope had he had of a final reward he was older by ten years than she and already his face began to show it he examined himself critically and was pleased to find with that light of hope in his eyes he was not so bad-looking as he feared he betook himself to the village tailor forthwith 
and ordered a new set of clothes, though his Sunday best was by no means shiny yet. He realized that if he did not win her now, he never would, and he resolved to do his best. On the way home, during all the joltings of the coach over rough roads, Hannah Heath was planning two campaigns, one of love with Lemuel and one of hate with Marcia Spafford. She was possessed of knowledge which she felt would help her in the latter, and often she smiled vindictively as she laid her neat plans for the destruction of the bride's complacency. That night the fire in the Heath parlor burned high and glowed, and the candles in their silver holders flickered across fair Hannah's face as she dimpled and smiled and coquetted with poor Lemuel. But Lemuel needed no pity. He was not afraid of Hannah. Not for nothing had he served his seven years, and he understood every fancy and foible of her shallow nature. He knew his time had come at last, and he was getting what he had wanted long, for Lemuel had admired and loved Hannah in spite of the dance she had led him, and in spite of the other lovers she had allowed to come between them. Hannah had not been at home many days before she called upon Marcia. Marcia had just seated herself at the piano when Hannah appeared to her from the hall, coming in unannounced through the kitchen door, according to old neighborly fashion. Marcia was vexed. She rose from the instrument and led the way to the little morning room which was sunny and cozy and bare of music or books. She did not like to visit with Hannah in the parlor. Somehow her presence reminded her of the evil face of Harry Temple as he had stooped to kiss her. "'You know how to play, too, don't you?' said Hannah as they sat down. "'Your sister plays beautifully. Do you know the new song, Home Sweet Home? She plays it with so much feeling and sings it so that one would think her heart was breaking for her home. You must have been a united family.' Hannah said it with sharp scrutiny in voice and eyes. "'Sit down, Miss Heath,' said Marcia coolly, lowering the yellow shades that her visitor's eyes might not be troubled by a broad sunbeam. "'Did you have a pleasant time in New York?' Hannah could not be sure whether or not the question was an evasion. The utterly childlike manner of Marcia disarmed suspicion. "'Oh, delightful, of course!' Could any one have anything else in New York? Hannah laughed disagreeably. She realized the limitations of life in a town. I suppose, said Marcia, her eyes shining with the thought, that you saw all the wonderful things of the city. I should enjoy being in New York a little while. I have heard of so many new things. Were there any ships in the harbor? I have always wanted to go over a great ship. Did you have opportunity of seeing one? "'Oh, dear me, no,' said Hannah. "'I shouldn't have cared in the least for that. "'I'm sure I don't know whether there were any ships in or not. "'I suppose there were. "'I saw a lot of sails on the water, but I did not ask about them. "'I am not interested in dirty boats. "'I liked visiting the shops best. "'Your sister took me about everywhere. "'She is a most charming creature. "'You must miss her greatly.' You were a sly little thing to cut her out. Marcia's face flamed crimson with anger and amazement. Hannah's dart had hit the mark, and she was watching keenly to see her victim quiver. I do not understand you, 
said Marcia, with girlish dignity. Oh, now, don't pretend to misunderstand. I've heard all about it from headquarters, she said it archly, laughing. But then I don't blame you. David was worth it. Hannah ended with a sigh. If she had ever cared for anyone besides herself, that one was David Spafford. I do not understand you, said Marcia again, drawing herself up with all the Schuyler haughtiness she could muster, till she quite resembled her father. Now, Mrs. Spafford, said the visitor, looking straight into her face and watching every expression as a cat would watch a mouse, you don't mean to tell me your sister was not at one time very intimate with your husband. Mr. Spafford has been intimate in our family for a number of years, said Marcia proudly, her fighting fire up. But as for my having cut my sister out, as you call it, you have certainly been misinformed. Excuse me, I think I will close the kitchen door. It seems to blow in here and make a draft. Marcia left the room with her head up and her fine color well under control, and when she came back her head was still up and a distant expression was in her face. Somehow Hannah felt she had not gained much after all. But Marcia, after Hannah's departure, went up to her cold room and wept bitter tears on her pillow alone. After that first visit, Hannah never found the kitchen door unlocked when she came to make a morning call, but she improved every little opportunity to torment her gentle victim. She had had a letter from Kate, and had Marcia heard? How often did Kate write her? Did Marcia know how fond Harry Temple was of Kate? And where was Kate's husband? Would he likely be ordered home soon? These little annoyances were almost unbearable sometimes, and Marcia had much ado to keep her sweetness of outward demeanor. People looked upon Lemuel with new respect. He had finally won where they had considered him a fool for years for hanging on. The added respect brought added self-respect. He took on new manliness. Grandmother Heath felt that he really was not so bad after all, and perhaps Hannah might as well have taken him at first. Altogether, the Heath family were well pleased, and preparations began at once for a wedding in the near future. And still David lingered, held here and there by a call from first one man and then another, and by important doings in Congress. He seemed to be rarely fitted for the work. Once he was called back to New York for a day or two, and Harry Temple happened to see him as he arrived. That night he wrote to Hannah a friendly letter. Harry was by no means through with Hannah yet, and casually remarked that he saw David Spafford was in New York again. He supposed now that Mrs. Leavenworth's evenings would be fully occupied, and society would see little of her while he remained. The day after Hannah received that letter was Sunday. The weeks had gone by rapidly since David left his home, and now the spring was coming on. The grass was already green as summer, and the willow tree by the graveyard gate was tender and green like a spring plume. All the foliage was out and fluttering its new leaves in the sunshine as Marcia passed from the old stone church with the two aunts and opened her little green sunshade. Her motion made David's last letter rustle in her bosom. It thrilled her with pleasure that not even the presence of Hannah Heath behind her could cloud. However prim and fault-finding the two aunts might be in the seclusion of their own home, 
in public no two could have appeared more adoring than Amelia and Hortense Spafford. They hovered near Marcia and delighted to show how very close and intimate was the relationship between themselves and their new and beautiful niece, of whom in their secret hearts they were prouder than they would have cared to tell. In their best black silks and their fine lace shawls, they walked beside her and talked almost eagerly, if these two stately beings could have anything to do with a quality so frivolous as eagerness. They wished it understood that David's wife was worthy of appreciation, and they were more conscious than she of the many glances of admiration in her direction. Hannah Heath encountered some of those admiring glances and saw jealously for whom they were meant. She hastened to lean forward and greet Marcia, her spiteful tongue all ready for a stab. "'Good morning, Mrs. Spafford. Is that husband of yours not home yet? Really? Why, he's quite deserted you. I call that hard for the first year, and your honeymoon's scarcely over yet.' "'He's been called back to New York again.' said Marcia, annoyed over the spiteful little sentences. He says he may be at home soon, but he cannot be sure. His business is rather uncertain. New York, said Hannah, and her voice was annoyingly loud. What, not again? There must be some great attraction there. And then with a meaning glance, I suppose your sister is still there. Marcia felt her face crimsoning, and the tears starting from angry eyes. She felt a sudden impulse to slap Hannah. What if she should? What would the aunts say? The thought of the tumult she might make roused her sense of humor, and a laugh bubbled up instead of the tears, and Hannah, watching, cat-like, could only see eyes dancing with fun, though the cheeks were charmingly red. By Hannah's expression, Marcia knew she was baffled, but Marcia could not get away from the disagreeable suggestion that had been made. Yes, David was in New York, and Kate was there. Not for an instant did she doubt her husband's nobleness. She knew David would be good and true. She knew little of the world's wickedness, and never thought of any blame, as other women might, in such a suggestion. But a great jealousy sprang into being that she never dreamed existed. Kate was there, and he would perhaps see her, and all his old love and disappointment would be brought to mind again. Had she, Marcia, been hoping he would forget it? Had she been claiming something of him in her heart for herself? She could not tell. She did not know what all this tumult of feeling meant. She longed to get away and think it over, but the solemn Sunday must be observed. She must fold away her church things, put on another frock, and come down to the oppressive Sunday dinner, hear Deacon Brown's rheumatism discussed, or listen to a long comparison of the morning sermon with one preached twenty years ago by the minister, now long dead, upon the same text. It was all very hard to keep her mind upon, with these other thoughts rushing pell-mell through her brain, and when Aunt Amelia asked her to pass the butter, she handed the sugar-bowl instead. Miss Amelia looked as shocked as if she had broken the great-grandmother's china teapot. Aunt Clorinda claimed her after dinner, and carried her off to her room to talk about David, so that Marcia had no chance to think even then. Miss Clorinda looked into the sweet-shadowed eyes, and wondered why the girl looked so sad. 
She thought it was because David stayed away so long, and so she kept her with her all the rest of the day. When Marcia went to her room that night, she threw herself on her knees beside the bed and tried to pray. She felt more lonely and heartsick than she ever felt before in her life. She did not know what the great hunger in her heart meant. It was terrible to think David had loved Kate. Kate had never loved him in return in the right way. Marcia felt very sure of that. She wished she might have had the chance in Kate's place, and then all of a sudden the revelation came to her. She loved David herself with a great overwhelming love, not just a love that could come and keep house for him and save him from the criticisms and comments of others, but with a love that demanded to be loved in return, a love that was mindful of every dear lineament of his countenance. The knowledge thrilled her through with a great sweetness. She did not seem to care for anything else just now, only to know that she loved David. David could never love her, of course, not in that way, but she would love him. She would try to shut out the thought of Kate from him forever. And so, dreaming, hovering on the edge of all that was bitter and all that was sweet, she fell asleep with David's letter clasped close over her heart. End of chapter 22